Thank you for joining us for another episode of CNUSD EdChat, a podcast for educators and families. I'm Kate Jackson. And I'm Anne-Marie Cortez. In today's episode, you will hear our colleague, Ivy Yule Eldridge, interview Dr. Randy and Dr. Dolores Lindsay, educators that have been involved in the development and study of culturally proficient teaching and instruction for over 30 years. Now, there are a lot of terms used in education these days. Social-emotional learning, culturally responsive teaching, microaggressions, cultural proficiency, unconscious bias. We hope that this episode will help clarify some of those terms with an intentional focus on what culturally proficient teaching actually looks like. Yes, the Lindsays will refer to this as the inside-out approach, as well as give us other tools to examine our own assumptions and biases. And it could not be more powerful for our nation's schools. So let's get to it. Let's do it. I want to thank you for inviting us to your home this rainy day in Escondido, (laughs) California, um, to be here to sit and chat with you today about cultural proficiency. Can you both introduce yourself? I'm Dolores Lindsay. And uh, thank you for joining us today. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you. I'm Randy Lindsay, and also pleased to be with you, Ivy. And our first question is uh, really regarding your life's work. We know that you've both dedicated yourself to education, and you've spent your entire life's work in the field of diversity and equity and tolerance, really beginning during the time of school desegregation, which I find entirely interesting. Uh, Can you explain exactly what cultural proficiency is and its its evolution in education in the United States? Yes, I can best illustrate it by just talking about the uh, turns that my career has taken. I started as a history teacher in Illinois, my home state, and during my first years of teaching in the 1960s, I enrolled at the University of Illinois to uh, take a Master of Arts in Teaching Social Studies. And quite by an unplanned way, ended up taking a course called Negro American History. And I was shocked by what I didn't know about history. I already had one degree in U.S. history, but everything I learned was new. And so all of a sudden, I'm starting to question and wonder why there's all these voids in my own preparation as a high school history teacher. Uh, Shortly after that, I had the opportunity to join a team to desegregate. This is Kankakee, Illinois schools. And by that time, this is 1970, starting to learn about a concept called racism and really understanding the negative effects it had insofar as impacts on uh, primarily African-American students' uh, backgrounds and and performance in schools. Um, One of the things that we were finding in schools at that time was having conversations about race were very challenging. And so we kept looking for a vehicle that that would provide an opportunity for people to have really growth conversations around what is race, what is gender, what is sexual orientation, what is social class, and how do those impact the way in fact, the the way in which we approach working with students. About that time, um, I had gravitated to Cal State Los Angeles, and with two colleagues there, Raymond Terrell and Kakanzanuri Robbins, we started crafting an idea for a book. At that time, we discovered the work of Terry Cross, and he had developed a construct for for social welfare and sociology that was to take a look at, um, instead of taking a look at what's wrong with communities, let's take a look at what assets they have. And he developed what we call the four tools of cultural competence. So we called him and asked him um, what he would charge us to license so we could take that work and adapt it into education. And a delightful man to talk with. And at the end of the conversation, he said, do no harm. 
And so we asked, that's wonderful. We appreciate that. That's our intent. But how much are you going to charge us? And he said, do no harm. And so for us, it's really been a gift and a gift that we try to keep developing so that we can continue our own journey to cultural competence and cultural proficiency uh, and work with colleagues who are authentically interested in educating all kids to high levels. I'm, I moved to California um, in the mid-80s, 1980s, uh, having started my teaching career in uh, Louisiana and Mississippi. At about the same time, Randy was describing the, the um, days of the civil rights movement in education, uh, using that term, desegregating schools. I arrived at about the time in uh, East Baton Rouge Parish School District uh, for court-ordered desegregation. Wow. And uh, that would indicate that folks weren't real happy about uh, what was going on in the school districts. Um, as a young teacher, uh, I knew right away that I wanted to be a school administrator, that I thought that would that's where school leadership could make a difference, um, mainly in working with families in the communities. Um, there was a, um, an amazing pushback uh, uh, against desegregation, against busing, a phenomena called white flight existed, uh, and I knew right away I wanted to be a school administrator. Um, I received my master's degree from Southern University. I, I'm a white woman, Southern white woman, <laughs> and uh, I selected um, Southern University as a historically black college and received my master's degree from there, and it was a life-changing experience. And um, then I was also asked by the superintendent to serve on the desegregation task force. And that was a four-year experience in uh, leadership in, in trying to move a community forward. Um, at, at about that time, now, by then I was 10 years into my career, and made some personal choices, which involved moving to California, relocating. I'd learned as part of the desegregation team that there were places outside of the South that were also working on desegregation, and Los Angeles, San Diego uh, were places uh, doing that also. So I moved to California, and that's where I met the team of Randy Lindsay, Ray Terrell, and Kikanza. So that brought us together then, as Randy was describing. And instead of the anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-classism that the environment in which I'd been, I then discovered um, working in the, the environment of the cultural proficiency is what we could be for, uh, the assets, environments, to the deficit uh, of what uh, students in their communities uh, would bring to schools. So um, that's what brought me, and, and then just over these uh, 40 plus almost 50 years in education just watching uh, as your question would imply the evolution of education and and where we are today it continues to be a struggle but public education is the hope um, and and we know that there's still there's private education there's parochial education um, education is uh, the future and and so we continue to work uh, with administrators, with superintendents, with parent groups, uh, with teacher unions, with the groups uh, who want to move forward in educating all students. Uh, and when we look at data, we realize we're doing well with some students. And so cultural proficiency gives us that conversation 
um, that when we say we're educating all students, we really look at what that really means. There are some amazing educators across the United States and elsewhere um, who may be thinking, you know, I don't discriminate, I treat everyone the same. Can you talk about how these really well-intentioned words, um, they might be actually detrimental to the work of cultural proficiency? That's a common comment that we hear very frequently. And for me, it's always an alert that there's a discomfort in talking about uh, issues of equity and issues of access. Um, when I hear that comment in an organization, um, and most, most often working with schools, I will frequently ask the person if they have children of their own. And if they do, I ask them if they have more than one. And if they do, then I ask them if they treat those multiple children exactly the same. And invariably, they say no. Uh, even if the other people in the room don't have children, they see that, that, that analogy. And so the important thing for me is when people say that is to understand that that's something they aspire to, but that's not actually how that they function and work. And so one of the things we do when working with kids who are high performing is we try to build around their talents. It's the same working with all kids. And so that becomes the important thing, seeing each person as an individual, each student as an individual, and then how do you, in fact, build on the assets they bring into the classroom. And so to move away from the discriminating and to see the, each child as, as an asset and as a cultural asset becomes a really important part of the work. We found that, that um, people who are serious about working with schools, um, they are well-meaning. They're there to serve children and, right. and work with the parents in the yeah. community. And they're often shocked um, at their own beliefs and values and assumptions. And once you can get folks to surface their assumptions, uh, it's pretty incredible at what happens uh, in the room or, or with the faculty. And you'll hear things like, well, um, those kids just can't do the work we expect of them. And then when you say things like, well, when you talk about those kids, who are you really describing? Mm -hmm. And they're face-to-face -face then with their own assumptions. And uh, so it takes a deep dialogue uh, and, and skillful dialogue, teaching folks how to have dialogue so that they really surface those assumptions. And, and when they come face-to-face -face with some of their own uh, beliefs and values, uh, it really enriches the conversation, and, and then they're, will, they're able then to move forward. We, we found out we, we can't change anybody else other than ourselves. Right. So it's not about changing people. It's about people changing their beliefs when they confront their own values and assumptions. Both of you mentioned assets a few times, and, and I wanted to connect that to one of your AXA articles that I read, and it was entitled, Focus on Assets, Overcome Barriers. You speak about knowing and respecting the unique needs of cultural groups in the community. And how do you see school-family-community partnerships contributing to that work of cultural proficiency? Well, we talk about barriers. It, uh, overcoming barriers is one of four tools that we present as the framework of cultural proficiency. And you really can't overcome the barriers until you recognize what those barriers are. And one of the barriers is the unawareness of the need to adapt. So our communities are changing every day. And sometimes schools just keep teaching the way we taught last year and the year mm -hmm. before and the year before without being aware that there are newcomers in our communities. Our community members are really bicultural. 
they have the culture of their uh, community members, their, their own home culture, and then they have to have the culture of schools. So there's the bicultural nature of who they are. So we've always expected parents to adapt to the culture of schools. We advocate in the focus on assets in that article is that as school leaders and teachers that we adapt to the culture of our community. And so we reach out into the community rather than saying, okay, folks, here's school. You just need to get it. Okay, this is how we run the school. So we, we advocate for folks looking a little deeper into how can we make school uh, more adaptable to the folks in the community. Um, newcomers come from uh, countries and schools, uh, countries where kids have been to school. And there's a way of going to school in that country, which may be different from how we do things here. So adapting to that uh, without saying, okay, this is just the way we do it here. Asking questions of uh, newcomers and parents. There are other students that come to us who've had no formal education. So helping adapt to what schooling is here. Um, and so that's what we mean by uh, school, family, community partnerships. And also recognizing uh, that the family determines what a family is. Right. We used to describe families in a very traditional way. And um, we used to ask questions about, well, who are, uh, who's your father? Who's your mother? Who's your grandparents? So now we leave it up to the families, the students, to describe family. So the student's family is the student's family without us. And we, we've made adjustments in, how to, in the forms that we ask students to fill out. Um, you know, it's up to them to describe their family. It's up to them to describe parents. So we're much more open and adapting to um, who, who the community is that we're serving. Just to link that to the earlier question, uh, the big part of, of making that family school connection is helping people see their own assumptions. And so we will do activities such as uh, having people describe how they view the kids who live in the trailer park, the kids who live in the projects, and actually put the adjectives and post the adjectives. And once people see that, the, how visible their assumptions are, it's always astonishing. And so at that point, you can differentiate between deficits and assets. And so then people can make the shift, very intentional shift. If I say this over here, what would be a way of seeing it so that I could actually view the child and their, their culture as an asset uh, and see the parents in the community and, and whoever the parents might be as assets that the kids bring to school? And so it, be, it changes the conversation. It's, it's just really a mind shift. It becomes very important. Amazing. <laughs> um, we're at the end of, of our interview today, and we always uh, end our interviews with a question, that, uh, a segment that we actually have called Tomorrow, This Week, and This Month. And with so many changes occurring nowadays, you know, in 21st century education and in learning and uh, just everything around us, what advice can you give to teachers or families as far as what they can try tomorrow? what they can try this week, and also what they can try this month. I'll start with one that they can try tomorrow. And that's to, if they're a classroom teacher, take a look at each child. You have them doing something, you know, so that you, you have time to observe. And just quietly take a look at each child and write on a, a notepad an adjective that you'd use to describe all of them. And be honest about that first one that comes up. 
and just doing that template of 25 to 35 students, then you have a real good profile of how you view that, that classroom. And so that, that can be a, a good start in taking a look at what, what anyone could do to today and tomorrow. And then what are some, and if you see some that are negative, then that's a cue to, are there other things you can look for in that child that would give you things that are much more positive and constructive? So being able to take a look at the students through the adjectives we use is a really important part of the work. One of the things for uh, site administrators or district office administrators, they can start doing this week. It, it's a process, so it might take longer. But to um, uh, take a look at the vision of the school district and uh, ask the question, uh, who do we say we are? Uh, so the question is, who are we? So you look at the vision statement, and that says, you know, who we say we are. Then for an administrator, just to take a walk around the school every day uh, and start looking at evidence for who we say we are. So then the question becomes, are we who we say we are? And then just take notes uh, as if you're an archaeologist and do an archaeology dig and start collecting artifacts that align with that vision. And something longer term that I would suggest, uh, we do suggest in schools that we're working with, is for the, um, the leaders, the, the formal leaders, the teachers and the administrators, to take a look at the professional development, professional learning that they've had for the last year, and look at the professional development, professional learning that's planned for the next year, take a look at all the topics, and identify the extent to which equity and access are building to all of them. Because uh, equity and access really should not be a separate topic other than for instruction purposes, but should be layered in everything we do. Um, I actually found a, a bright spot, a silver lining in No Child Left Behind. And the silver lining to No Child Left Behind was it made the achievement got public in ways that we in education resisted doing for two generations. And so now that's on the table, I think it's a real healthy opportunity. We did not create the achievement gap, but it's on our doorsteps to, to address and to solve. We also say that, that schools or districts that really want to take a look at themselves, that um, cultural proficiency is like a magnifying glass. So it's not an extra program. It's not another something to do, put on that busy plate, that plate that's already full. So cultural proficiency with the four tools is the lens that you use, that magnifying glass, that you use to examine everything else that you do. So if, if you have a um, budget plan, we, in California now we call it the LCAP, the local control, is it a culturally proficient uh, LCAP? Is it a culturally proficient discipline plan? Is it a culturally proficient uh, uh, school-wide plan, uh, equity plan? All plans now have the word equity in front of them. So you're really using the lens of equity, the lens of cultural proficiency, using those four tools. Another way to do this work is through book studies. Uh, the books are written so that they're self-guided, and they're built on the idea of reflection that Randy said. So you can use it as an individual, or you can use it as a, a faculty, a whole faculty uh, study. And so um, it's a way to get into the work and uh, use the reflection as and also uh, dialogic activities to guide the work. So that can start tomorrow, guide you into the week, 
and through the month and all through the year as well. <laughs> it can become it too can become your life's work. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for inviting us to sit and chat with you today. And um, I am looking forward to sharing this podcast with our listeners. Thank, thank you, you so much. Appreciate it very much. So immediately I want to review the many published works to choose where I can begin this journey of cultural proficiency and apply this lens in everything I do. Well, I'm ready for that vertical book study, Anne-Marie, are you? Uh, I'm always ready for another book study, as long as you're buying. Um, I think you still owe me from the last one. Okay, well, as we sort this out, we hope you will head over to our show notes page to find any and all resources mentioned in this episode. You can find our show notes at cnusd.k12.ca.us forward slash edchat. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Kim Kemmer, the newest member of CNUSD EdChat. This episode of CNUSD EdChat is co-produced by Kate Jackson, Ivy Yule Eldridge, and Anne-Marie Cortez, and edited by Ivy Yule Eldridge, Kate Jackson, and Michael Hughes. If you would like to comment on their podcast, go to cnusd.k12.ca.us edchat, and be sure to follow them on Twitter and Facebook at CNUSD EdChat to let them know the topics you are interested in. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. We greatly appreciate your support.